Buenas tardes, people. Welcome back to the Metropolitan Culture Corner, where once a month we go behind the scenes with one of the truly awesome and endlessly inspiring figures from the local arts and culture scene. They are local because they live in Barcelona or the surrounding area, but many of these folks are also internationally recognized for what they do. This month, we have the opportunity to speak with blues guitarist, singer, and songwriter Santos Puertas. Originally from the nearby town of San Just, he spent a number of years in the U.S. learning from the living legends of blues, country, and folk music in cities that were the birthplace of these styles, such as Dallas, Texas, Austin, Texas, and Greensboro, North Carolina. He has an incredibly profound knowledge of American roots music and has gained the respect and admiration of top musicians in the genre in both Europe and America. Santos sounds more deep down, authentic country than most musicians do who were born in Appalachia. And I am not alone in this view as he's received important accolades from the Piedmont Blues Preservation Society, from the International Blues Challenge, which brings together bands playing blues from all over the world, and from fellow artists who are seen to be the gold standard within the genre. His main musical projects include his trio, Triple Santos, and the Suitcase Brothers, a duo with his brother Victor Puertas, also a singer and a virtuosic harmonica player. The two have toured internationally and there's just a super long list of cool things that they've done. For example, they were kept to compose the soundtrack for multiple Goya award-winning documentary film El Bola, and on and on and on. They have just released their fifth album together called Love, Truth, and Confidence, which is a tribute to the Piedmont Blues duo Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Santos has also recorded solo and has collaborated with other bands, including Barcelona-based Flamingo Tours. I personally am a big fan of this guy's work. I'm very happy to have this opportunity to introduce him to all of you on the Metropolitan Culture Corner. Please Welcome, Santos Puertas. The blues is the source of all music, you know? The best that I think that put it, it was in this documentary that PBS did about jazz. And the first episode is called Gumbo. Winton Marsalis talks about jazz. And he says, look, jazz without the blues is like the gumbo without the root that kind of taste that makes the gumbo that soup. Otherwise, it's just rice soup, you know, could be any soup, but that thing makes it special. And I think it's so interesting and so important, that concept. It's the feeling, it's the emotion. I totally agree with that concept. Buddy Guy says the blues is a feeling, you know? And I thought, well, yeah, but to learn the chords and the progressions and, you know, and, but then with time, I think I've got to understand a little bit of what he was saying, that if you don't feel it, when you are performing, when you're playing, you don't put yourself into it, it won't be okay. It is a feeling. The form is simple, but the challenge is there. You know, try to make it interesting. How are you? Hey, how are you, Tori? I'm good, thank you. And I'm happy to talk to you. Let's start with what is, for me, at least the most obvious question. As a guy from San Just, what led you to not only discover this American Roots music, but also to form such a strong bond with it, you know, to make it yours? Was there an album or a concert or an experience that was like this lightning strike moment, or was it kind of a gradual discovery? There was kind of a, a couple of aha moments for me. I remember being in high school and listening primarily to Jimi Hendrix for some reason. And Mozart. Totally American and, uh, roots music. There you go. <laughs> yeah. In my house, my mom would play some classical music on the record player, but also, what's the guy named? Uh, the fountains are dripping all over the beat singer. <laughs> I just needed to chant the song a little bit. So it was kind of an influence too. We didn't have internet in that time and barely access to any type of music that it wasn't played on the radio. But I managed to find radio stations from the States. I was exposed to country music, you know? Wow. Big dreams in a small town. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. I 
didn't even know the language. I would just like mimic the sound of the vocals, but I didn't know all the words. That was one reason why I wanted to study English, is because I wanted to know the words. So from an early age, I was exposed to both the language and the music. And one of the aha moments was a VCR cassette of my parents' house, and it was Lightning Hopkins playing a song. And I, I would recognize the chords because they were just C, F, and G. But I had no idea how he made that sound like that. The sound was incredible. And I could listen to the bass and the melody at the same time. And it was like, what is he doing? You know, I tried to play it and it was so hard. From that moment, I said, okay, I, I need to do this no matter how hard it is. And then another of the songs I really started practicing, it was Walk On from Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Mm -hmm. I had that. It was a compilation. I played that until I figured out that he was using his thumb over the neck, you know, stuff like that. It's so easy to learn these days. I'm not putting it down, like it's a different conversation, but really it was not easy. And I think it made it, in my case, more interesting too, because it was a challenge and I just got hooked. I don't even start to learn guitar per se as an instrument. I wanted to play the style. Well, enough so that eventually you ended up in Texas, actually being there in person with some of the people who started these styles of music. What did that teach you the opportunity to be there in person? I mean, the Texas thing is really crazy, to be honest. I don't know, if, you know, reincarnation, that's how you say it. Reincarnation, you know, reincarnated. Yeah. I'm trying not to go there, but for some funny reason, when I started playing, and maybe I was 15 or so, 16, this guy saw me playing guitar and I was playing with a friend of mine. He said, hey, you know, your friend is more kind of a Chicago style guitar player. You're more like Texas. Hmm. When I think of all the music that I was attracted to, the first time that I went to Texas, the people I met there, and then afterwards when I was living there, it kind of like since a, since a teenager, there was this path kind of written for me. It was kind of like I had to walk that path towards that state for some reason. And it's the music, you know, that made me go there. I was in that time subbing at the American School of Barcelona, and there was this guy, Doron Marcos, who was a science teacher, and he had a friend in Austin, a great jazz guitar player. Andrew Napsinger. And uh, I asked him, like, hey, look, I'm playing this music that is not my own, but I feel really deep inside and I want to do it if I'm doing a good job. So I feel like I have to go there to the source and play it for the people that are actually natives and that really know the stuff. If I should continue doing this or I should just quit or whatever. And I said, I don't know where to go. Chicago, New York. I said, go to Austin. I got a friend in Austin. It's a great place. That's when Austin was like a really small town, early 2000s. Wow, man, <laughs> that changed everything for me. You know, I got there and I started playing gigs. The following week, my brother came to visit. What kind of feedback did you guys get when you're doing these first couple gigs in Texas? They would call us the, the blue Spaniards. <laughs> <laughs> man, you ended up with the Suquez brothers is better, I think, personally, but that works. It was fun because we were young. And like I said, Austin was like a little town. The scene was incredible. It still is, the music scene in Austin, besides the quality of the musicians, you know, the super high quality of most of the musicians, it's a community, the sense of community, a brotherhood that exists in Austin still. How welcome you feel when you go there. That Southern hospitality, maybe. And I started learning, wow, you know, and, and everybody invited you to play, even if you didn't know how to do it. Like the first time we went to a party and everybody was in circle playing songs and stuff like you do over there, right? And then somebody started a song and you just learn it on the spot. And then this guy's like, hey, take a solo, right? Mm -hmm. I never played country music before, so I did what I could. And then at the end of the song and stuff, and the guy's like, hey, man, that, that thing you did there, then he showed me, that was good. He didn't tell me like, oh, you need to improve or you need, oh, you'll get better, blah, blah. It was so 
educational and rewarding, you know? Positive reinforcement, right? Yeah, and I think in the States you get that. I don't know if you agree, because you've been living in Spain for a long time too, and sometimes that lack of music being an everyday thing, like a common thing, like something that you do, you know? Well, Austin, Nashville, those cities, you know, you eat, you breathe, you sleep, you play an instrument. <laughs> You're almost anywhere else in the world, it's, it's not necessarily always like that, so it's definitely a different way of communication, for sure. You were talking about your brother and him coming to visit you in Texas. For those people who don't know, you and your brother have often been compared to a really famous Piedmont blues duo, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Your brother, Victor Puertas, is an amazing harmonica player. He also sings. You know, a lot of artists don't like comparisons, even if it's to a legend within their genre. But other people see it as a compliment. So when people started comparing you to these pretty important figures, did you take it as a compliment or did you take it as, you know, stop trying to put me in a box? They were our first love. We worked really hard to sound like them, but not as a project. It was kind of like, wow, you know, this is so great how how you would not try to imitate that and then my brother he's, he's very musical in the sense like he plays piano too professionally Hammond B3 he's hired many times to play on the harmonica is a stellar you can also play bass guitar whatever you know your name is one of those guys you know it's interesting how for some reason, this music that is simple in the form, but is so complex when you need to send a message with that simple form. Answering to your question, we don't mind. In the blues, I think for some reason, being compared with some classic is a positive thing. As an artist, that's why I have also my own project, is because there I can do whatever I feel and it's more the music that it comes from inside of me. The blues is kind of like, we try to be humble about this and just be like some sort of link with the past. So if somebody listens to our music and relates to it and likes it, we hope that he would go to the source and listen to the original Sanitary and Brian McGee because it would blow his people's mind. So I'm okay with doing this exercise of estilism, if you want to call it, you know, where we dissect every note, every chord, every harmony, because they were incredible. If you listen to the harmonies that they were doing, the vocals are really unique. There's so much information there. Why do you think this kind of music continues to resonate with people so much, whether they're an older generation, younger, Spanish, American, German, whatever? Why do you think that it reaches people in this way? It's the beat. It's music that is vernacular. It's been passing one generation after another. It's the, the closest thing to the heartbeat, I think. There's a great comment on that by the great jazz player, Joe Pass. Mm -hmm. He was asked about some scales, something like that in a workshop. And they said, oh, come on, ask me something interesting. And he was like, okay, you don't ask anything interesting, I'll tell you something interesting. When I'm playing in front of 2,000, 3,000 people, you know, we're talking about a solo jazz guitar player, no singing, instrumental. And uh, it's like, I'm playing and then I'm going all these places and playing these notes. And, and when I started seeing the faces of the people, kind of trying to understand what's going on or like, you know, then I go back to the blues hmm. and then they kind of like relax, you know. You don't need to understand it. It's just something you relate for just being a human being, you know. It's this music that is, like I said, like a heartbeat. This is you feel it. Blues comes from poor people. B.B. King once said that he started playing live because he realized he made more money and got mm. more girls playing than picking cotton, you know. The blues came from a culture of people, specifically black people in the U.S. who were suffering, right? Brown Newman, for example, his early life was hard. He couldn't walk for a long time because he had a polio infection. All this to say, do you think musicians specifically blues musicians, do you think they have to go through hard times to make good music or to write good songs? Yeah, that's interesting. I think in general, not only in blues, the hardest times that you go through is the best songs that are gonna come out of you. In my case, that's the truth. When I've been really 
down in the ground, like really low and having really hard times, the music would be the healer. It would come out in the best of possible ways. I mean, because it will be connected to that suffering, you know, it'll be connected to that moment. I struggle to write a happy song for some reason. <laughs> That's something that I is a challenge for me. I don't know why. Maybe I've been listening to blues and folky music and all that murder songs and all that stuff for so long that I relate to it. At the end of the day, is what I say sometimes in the gig. It's like, hey, when I play all these sad songs, I said, hey, you know, these songs just remind you that you're probably in a better place than this person was. When you sing, you know, the act of singing, the act of embracing that kind of helps to go through it. When you talk about Sonny Terry and Bernard McGee, and Sonny Terry also got blind. He was a kid, and then he suffered an accident in one eye, and then afterwards suffered another accident in the other eye. So there were two guys that had so many reasons to be complaining about life. And their gigs were, like, entertaining, and they were fun, and, and their music was so vivid and so alive. It's just like, okay, I get it. <laughs> you enjoy the music more and the good parts more if you've been through bad stuff, right? Yeah. Sonny Terry and Brownie, they spent so much time playing together they toured together they recorded albums together for decades you and your brother you've played together you've toured together for years what does that give to a project if you're two people that have worked together in a duo for that long that maybe you wouldn't get from playing with a session player or a musician you just met you know that saying like blood is thicker than water they would apply to this you've been doing it for so long and then you, you share the same blood and I know people that they don't agree with this what I'm about to say actually recently an interview with uh, Kiko P. De La Serra I said you know there's no better harmonies than two brothers singing like the Alman brothers and he said well I don't see it like that and I think if you're a good musician you can do it anyways but I guess that he missed my point of being emotionally connected to the person because it's not only a good musician or in case of my brother a great musician it's more like there's a bound there his family I mean just think about anybody that has a brother or a sister maybe they don't talk to each other for a while maybe they got into a fight or whatever but even the fight escalate more than with a normal person the way you talk to your brother or to your family sometimes is way more disgraceful than, than the way you talk to other people they say here you know la confianza da asco no? but whatever it is at the end of the day there's nothing you can do because it's still your brother or your sister thicker than water man i mean we rehearse the new songs, but I can just sit with my brother and play some and, and there's a huge connection. We don't rehearse the solos or some of the parts and we change the songs on the spot. If I make a mistake, he would go with me so it doesn't look like a mistake. That's amazing. I mean, when you can do that with a person, it's just... And Sonny and Brownie would do it too. With your other projects, you've done a solo album, you have Triple Centos, you also work with other bands like the Flamingo Tours. How is that different than what you do with the Suitcase Brothers? I don't mean how's the format different, how's the way you approach it or how you write differently or what does it do differently for you as a performer? Yeah, it is very different because in my solo project it's pretty much I decide what we're going to be doing. I'm really lucky that the musicians I work with, they really believe in the project and they add to the project. This is the other more romantic kind of view that we all had when we started playing. These great bands that they've been working forever together, they started as friends in a garage. Yeah, just for fun. And then there's other bands, it's just the solo guy that hires amazing musicians, learn the music and, and it's also great. But the difference is in that exact thing. When they call you to work for somebody, you just think about this person's feel, trying to please that person as much as you can. And with my brother, there are discussions and about style or, you know, that we've been polishing through the years because it's 24 years is a long time and having to 
deal with stuff that is uncomfortable many times and you know making decisions and who makes the decision and who follows and I, I say to my brother many times like dude it's 50 percent brother if you say yes i say no you're gonna have to kind of let go either you or me but you know it's 50 percent. and the trio is something that i really would like to be working more it's kind of like really who i am as an artist it's so influenced by the blues i mean I'm, i would never escape that that project is really special we sing in different languages and we try to bring a message of hey everything is possible and music should be universal it's kind of a different me from the blues persona that, that i also love sounds a little bit schizophrenic but it is what it is <laughs> whether it's with victor or whether it's in these other projects how do you guys make certain decisions because you're trying to weigh artistic intent versus commercial success and i mean it's a lot right like we live in this era where there's all these digital considerations social media blah 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 but you guys recorded your last album on tape, which is most old school as you can possibly get. So how do you guys find a balance, not only between two personalities and two artists, but also between just all the different ways that you're pulled as a musician? I think, and thank you for this question, because I, I didn't expect this one, but my answer to this is one word, that is empathy. If you have empathy, it just helps so much in any process. There are two ways to kind of like face a situation, a disappointing situation, that you expect something is not done, or it didn't happen. And then you either split up or kind of like blame that person, hold a grudge, all that negativity, you know, or you put some empathy into it, get on this other person's shoes and think, well, maybe it was tough for the other person too. And I'm not talking about my brother, I'm talking about me too. I mean, let's make this clear, like it goes both ways. I mean, it's not only one way or the other. I think that is the healer. I mean, do you want to work this out or not? Do you want your ego to get in the way and be right about something? Or, hey, it's okay, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Are you okay? Can I help you with something? I mean, it's easy to say. It's not easy when you're in the spot, you know? I could give you many examples. There's just so much work around what we do. We both find ourselves in situations where like, oh, I forgot about that, damn. Or I don't feel like doing this right now. Well, you don't have to feel it <laughs> right now. This is something that you have to do, you know? like this all these guru say learn to love what you hate one of the keys to success whatever success is actually i don't want to call it success but accomplish stuff in the long run is basically doing the things you don't like when you don't want to do it it's like do i want to get on this computer now and do this this no but i have to do it right okay and do i want to do it now that it's sunday and i could be with my family or my friends and like no but i'll do it because it's necessary. We work for ourselves, so you never stop. There's always something to do. There's always more that we could be doing. That mind frame is kind of dangerous too, you know. Often when I'm interviewing someone who's done a lot in the world of music or theater or art, I ask them what advice would you give to a young artist who's starting out? But actually in this case, I think it's more interesting to ask, what would you tell somebody who, who's been doing whether it's music or another kind of art, a long time, and they're just burnt out. How do you maintain the passion for what you do after all this time? What would you tell them to find it again? Wow, that's a big, yeah? That's a very hard question. I think it's the same as trying to find, again, who you were. Because at the end of the day, I think the art that we make is just because this is who we are. So I think in the process of learning stuff and getting experience, you're losing a little bit of yourself in everything, in every downside, in every heartbreak, in every bad concert, bad review. 
you know, you kind of like building this sort of shield or hard skin around you. It's so interesting that you ask me this right now because I'm in the process right now. I got to deconstruct that. I got to start taking the pieces of the shield and stop being scared of getting hurt. Because, yeah, we were in the past, but if we don't renew that, we cannot really be reborn. It's got to be genuine. I mean, it's got to be for real. You got to be true to yourself. You got to be honest to yourself. I mean, the day, I hope it never comes. If one day I get on the stage and I'm playing and I'm not feeling anything, like I'm not better afterwards, it's time to change, it's time to do something else. But to this day, knock on wood, it'll go for many, many years. And basically it's that, it's going back to the, to the basics, you know? I think everybody's kind of burned out after the pandemic and stuff. The concept of returning to the source of things and trying to find a purpose, something I think a lot of people are trying to struggle with, whether it's an artistic question or not. That's why I like doing these interviews, because I think people, whether they're a musician, whether they're not, whether they work in a bank, work in a bar, you can always find inspiration from hearing other people's stories, right? why I was happy that we got to talk. Thank you for this interview and thank you for thinking of me. And I'm super glad that we got to talk about music and, and how we can continue doing this. <laughs> yep. Thank you so much. Really. Thank you so much, Santos. And hopefully one of these days, I'll be able to catch you and Victor live playing songs off your new record. See, that interview just makes me want to go out and buy a bunch of old Muddy Waters and Steve Earle albums. Not that I need an excuse to do that. Thanks to all of you for listening. And as always, thank you for supporting local music, art, and culture. And if this is your first time tuning into the Metropolitan Culture Corner, please make sure to check out the interviews we've done over the past three and a half years. They're some of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had. And lucky for us, they are recorded. With whom, you say? Well, where do I begin? I've had the opportunity to speak to other musicians and songwriters such as Adriano Galante, Nuria Graham, with photographers like Margaret Stepien and Xavi Mercadei, with dancers and choreographers such as Chase Jonzi, playwrights and poets like Denise Duncan and Sonia Barba. Who else? Let's see. Lighting designers, sound technicians like Frank Eleu, Yves Roussel, documentary filmmakers such as Miles Rostin and Antibajo Cinematográfico. The list just goes on and on and on and on. So whether you're into design or cooking or theater, there's somebody who's talking about your passion in our list of interviews I can almost guarantee it and if not if we're missing something or someone send us a message leave us a comment let us know who you'd like to see interviewed next month oh and almost forgot to mention that if you're not so much of a YouTube person you can also listen to these interviews as convenient podcasts on SoundCloud see you next month <laughs>